we were um, we were last in the gospel according to John back on March 13th. Uh, and so this morning we're going to pick up right where we left off, which is John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. So I'm going to read that. We'll just start right there. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough to feed each of them or for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Lord, you have spoken to us in your word, and so you know exactly what we need today, and I pray that you would feed us the bread that we need this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, just by by way of review, um, early on in our study, uh, in fact, the very first sermon that I preached as I as I introduced John's gospel, um, we looked at, at this question. Why did John write this? Why did John write this book, this gospel account? Why did he write down this um, recording of some of the works and some of the teachings of Jesus Christ? What message was he trying to spread? Well, his overall theme The reason that John wrote, he says it very clearly at the end of the book in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John um, wrote this book. This is why sometimes John is called John the Evangelist. He wrote that we may believe. He wrote so that we may have life in Christ's name. I don't know how to put it more simply than that. Andreas Kostenberger, in his commentary on John's gospel, he divides the book into a a prologue at the very beginning. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. He puts an epilogue at the, at the very end, in, in really the final chapter. 
And then he says that there are two main books or sections in the middle. The book of the signs through chapter 12, and then the book of the glory beginning in chapter 13. So here in John chapter 6, we're in the midst of the book of the signs. The book of the signs and the book of the glory. The signs are the signs of the Messiah. Proof that he is who he has said that he is. From turning water into wine that we looked at early on to raising Lazarus from the dead that we will see um, in the coming weeks or months, however long it takes us to get there. These signs of the Messiah were proof that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, We're going to look at another one of these signs today, here in John chapter 6. And yet John only records eight such signs. Compare that to Matthew uh, or Luke, uh, who each record 20 signs. Mark, who gives us 18 signs that Jesus performed. Nevertheless, the the purpose of John's gospel is clearly stated. It is for belief and life. So clearly, this is an evangelistic book that we might believe and have life. And then the second uh, section, the book of the glory, beginning in chapter 13, is largely Jesus' teaching. It is him preparing uh, this new messianic community, this new covenant fellowship, this new assembly of saints. It's him preparing the church. And as he does, he, as he teaches, he lays out seven I am statements, uh, really that clearly identify Jesus as God and Messiah. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. That's why this is the book of the glory. Because Jesus is the great I am. This morning we're going to begin to catch just just kind of a glimpse of that first I am statement. I am the bread of life. He actually makes that statement here in chapter 6, down in verse 35. Um, So we won't get to it specifically this week. But this statement, really, I am the bread of life, this is central to to understanding this entire chapter. Even even this first section that we just read, the feeding of the 5,000. So as we walk through this, Keep that statement in your mind. Keep it rattling around in your brain as we talk about these things. That Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Well, verse 1, right at the very beginning, it begins with a statement after this. After what? What is John talking about? Well, Jesus' public ministry, um, it's in full swing by this point. Uh, We've been introduced to him Um, As John will write in the opening sentence of his book, we've been introduced to Jesus when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then a little bit later he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Father, full of, uh, from the Son, Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then a different John, John the Baptist, he proclaimed this about Jesus in the first chapter, in verse 29, when he said, we read the, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus assembles his, uh, his disciples. One of those disciples was a man by the name of Nathaniel. 
And he declares in chapter 1, verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus begins to perform signs as a witness to who he is. And and initially the results were, as John chapter 2, verse 11 says, this, the first of his signs, this is the turning water into wine. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him, it says. It really wasn't until much later that the disciples would really come to understand really who this man was. Um, It wasn't until later that they would understand the extent of his ministry. And so in John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22 explains this way. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, John writes for us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. But in the meantime, because that happens later, In the meantime, he's also witnessed to a a variety of others from, really from the Jewish leadership, or Nicodemus especially. In chapter 3, he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he also said, very famously, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And he goes on and says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And as as John the Baptist continued to minister, he will point to Christ, and he will tell his own disciples, John the Baptist's own followers, he will say, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But it was at this point, in, in John chapter 4, that Jesus, we read, had to pass through Samaria. And that led him to reveal his true identity to the, to the Samaritan woman at the well. And in turn, that led many in her village to believing in him. John chapter 4, verses 41 and 42 tells us, And and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because what you have said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. So at this point, this very fast review of the first few chapters of John, At this point, the disciples believe, Samaritans believe, at least to a certain extent, and the Jewish leaders have been confronted with the truth. And so Jesus performs a couple more signs, but but one of them he does on the Sabbath. 
And that caused problems for the Jews. But it also led to Jesus saying this in, in John chapter 5, verses, beginning in verse 25. He says this to the Jewish leadership. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will, will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. But instead of these signs and, and all these teachings driving the Jews, driving the Pharisees, these Jewish leadership, instead of it driving them to belief, it drove them to seek all the more to kill him, it says. And so Jesus concludes this first section. He concludes John chapter 5 by laying out a condemnation. The last couple of verses of John chapter 5 says this, For if you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He's telling the Pharisees. He's telling these, these Jewish uh, experts in the Jewish law, He's telling these experts of the Old Testament, he's telling that because they've rejected Christ in the Old Testament, they've rejected Christ. The disciples believe, even many Samaritans believe, at least, as I said, at least to a certain extent, but the experts don't. The religious experts don't believe. And so after this, it seems appropriate that Jesus would go far away, especially since they were, they were seeking all the more to kill him. Yet he knew that his time had not yet come. And so here in chapter 6, he's not in hiding. Jesus is not in hiding. He's not fearful. He's not keeping a low profile. He's not going by un, uh, under an, an assumed name. In fact, in this chapter, Jesus will boldly declare who he is, both in deed and in word. And he actually he begins with the deed, the miracle, the, the sign. Chapter 6 begins with the impossible, and it ends with the impossible to believe. And so as we look at this fourth major sign in the book of the signs here, we see Jesus serving the people yet again, although this time he's doing it on a grand scale. And as the rest of John chapter 6 unfolds over the coming weeks as we study this, as we read this, I would encourage you to read it this week, as the rest of John chapter 6 unfolds, Jesus shows himself to be, to be like Moses. Remember, he's been talking about Moses at the end of chapter 5. And so he shows that he's, he's like Moses, only so much better. Moses was merely a shadow of Jesus. So think of it this way. If you're familiar with the Exodus... The story of the Exodus, of God redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt. If you're familiar at all with this story of them wandering through the desert, you, you may remember that God provided manna. He provided bread for his people, really through Moses. But Jesus himself is sent by God as the bread, as the bread of life. So keep John chapter 6 verse 35 in mind as we work through these first 15 verses. Jesus said to them, 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And keep that in mind as we walk through these first 15 verses. Um, this passage, this account of the feeding of the 5,000, as we commonly call this, kind of divides fairly neatly into four parts. Uh, let me give you those. The first is the setting. And so the first four verses, verses 1 through 4, uh, describe for us the setting. It's what's going on. Then after that, we see the problem and man's solution. So the setting is in the first four verses. Then in verses 5 through 9 is the problem and man's solution. Then, of course, Jesus' solution in 10 through 13, what Jesus did to solve the problem. And then in verse, uh, verses 14 and 15 is the response of the crowd. So the setting, the problem, and man's solution, Jesus' solution, and the response of the crowd. So let's look at this specific setting. Again, verses 1 through 4. It begins with, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, I've already explained the after this. We did a really fast run-through of the first five book uh, chapters of John's Gospel. But John uses this phrase, after this, or some versions might say, after these things. He uses this kind of as a, kind of as a vague transition to, to push this narrative along so that we will understand what is happening. And so as the story picks up, in chapter 5, he had been in Jerusalem. He had been talking with some Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But now, uh, he's something like, something like 70 miles to the northeast on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. So this story takes place about something like 70 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. This means that Jesus and his disciples have traveled really back into friendly territory. It is the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders who are seeking all the more to kill him, but he has had a fairly profitable ministry in Galilee. But they're on the far side of the lake. And, and incidentally here, John uses two names for this sea or, or this lake. It's kind of like uh, one of the Great Lakes. It's that, that big. He uses two names because the locals would have called it the Sea of Galilee, but Herod renamed it the Sea of Tiberias in honor of the Roman Emperor Tiberius. And it took a while for that name change to, um, to kick in. It's sort of like Sears Tower, Willis Tower type thing. Um, and then just let me make it a little bit more confusing because this really doesn't have anything to do with. In the Old Testament... So hundreds of years earlier, the place is called Lake Gennesaret. But it's all the same place. It just has different names over time. So it's all the same place, the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's unclear how much time has passed between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. But John tells us here that, that Jesus has gained a large following. A large crowd is following him around. Maybe... Maybe some have followed him up from Jerusalem. Certainly the disciples have done that. The disciples have followed him. They've been traveling with him. But we also know from the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus has had a significant ministry in and around Galilee, and also in Samaria, as we read. And so these crowds are, are likely from all over. 
But the clues to this are in the verbs. Listen again here to verse 2. And a large crowd was following him, but they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So following, saw or observed, doing or performing. These verbs, and some of you are teachers in here, and so I will probably get this wrong. These verbs, I believe, are in the imperfect tense, which means that it's an ongoing action. These things are are going on and on and on. Jesus is continually healing the sick and and people from all around and every place that he would go would notice these things and they would continue to to follow him around. They would join in and follow him. And, And just notice here, John is clearly talking about miraculous signs that Jesus is doing. He's performing miracles. He's healing people. But John uses the word signs. He doesn't say he's healing them. He doesn't say he's performing miracles. It says that he's doing signs. He does this intentionally because the miracle is not the point. The sign points us to Jesus. These are given that you might believe and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, the details, picking it up in verses 3 and 4, these details in these verses are important. Because they're given here to help us kind of draw a connection between Jesus and Moses on Mount Sinai. He actually will bring this up beginning down in verse 30. We're not going to get to that this week. I just want to plant that seed in your head. So it's Passover. I said earlier that that John the Baptist had called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so for those around Jesus, he is already being connected here with being a sacrificial lamb. Now it's Passover. So so put all of these things together, this imagery. Jesus has gone to the outer reaches of the world. He's far away from Jerusalem. Many are gathering to him as as followers or, or disciples because of the signs that they see. And so they follow him to this mountain at the time of the Passover, which of course was... The Jews' time to remember how God had delivered them from their slavery in Egypt. What do you think will happen next? What do you think would happen next out here on this mountain on the far side of the Sea of Galilee? If this was all that we had read so far about Jesus, what would you think would happen? If you're familiar with the pattern of Scripture, you may have some guesses, but it probably won't be what we expect. One of the common patterns of Scripture is that God does what we don't expect. Um, So, for example, Jesus has sat down. This is the custom for the teachers in his day. So, So you might expect him to teach at this point, to go on the side of the mountain and sit down. In fact, Jesus has sat down on the side of a mountain before, and he delivered what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. So you certainly could expect him to do that again here. And he will teach, but not in the way that we would expect and certainly not with the outcome that we would expect, especially, especially when we get to the end of the chapter and essentially everybody except the disciples leave. Instead, he, he will teach by pointing out a problem and then asking for a solution. And so this is the second section here, the problem and man's solution. Pick it up in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. 
And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Back in Samaria, when they had been traveling through, as they waited for the townspeople to come out after the Samaritan woman at the well went and got them and said, come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. The townspeople are coming out, and as they're walking, Jesus says to his disciples in John 4, verse 35, he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And if you remember, what he's actually telling them is to pay attention to what God is doing. But here, here in John chapter 6, it's Jesus who lifts up his eyes and sees. It's Jesus who sees the needs of the people. And and verse 6 tells us that he knows what he's going to do. So he does test Philip and Andrew, but he knows what he's going to do. He sees the people, he sees the needs. This should be of great comfort for us. Because in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, we read that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means that Jesus has lifted up his eyes and he has seen you. Jesus has lifted up his eyes and he has seen you. He saw you when you were still a long way off, when you were still a long way from him. He saw you before you believed in him. Do you know what this means? It it means that he has seen your pain. He has seen your hunger. He has seen your thirst. And he is prepared to meet your needs. He knows how he will heal your pain. He knows what he will do to quench your thirst. He's he's even seen the sin that you may have done. And and he's not surprised. and, And yet he still says... Even though he has seen us from a long way off, he has still said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus has lifted up his eyes, and he has seen you. And he has prepared a feast for you. One of the the characteristics of this church, Logansville Church, um, that has changed over the past several years, it's that it has kind of developed from being a a community church. And, And don't get me wrong, there is nothing wrong with community churches. But it's kind of changed from being a community church to being a church where people have come from outside of Logansville, if you can imagine that. What are you laughing at? I live in Logansville. (laughs) People have come from outside of Logansville and they have come here to seek refuge. People have come here for the healing power of God's word. It ain't me. It's the healing power of God's word. People have come to be fed from the bread of life. It's the same story for many of us in here, myself included. And you know what? Jesus lifted up his eyes and he saw you and he knew what he was going to do long before you ever walked in these doors. 
Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw you, and he knows what he's going to do. But first, he tests Philip. Probably because, as as chapter 1 tells us, when he's acquiring his disciples, Philip is from the area, Um, along with Peter and Andrew, by the way. They're from the region of Galilee. And so you can imagine it going something like this or looking something like this. Philip, is there a, is there a Chick-fil-A anywhere around here? Is there a place around here where we could pick up a few groceries? Just enough to feed, say, 5,000 families? Moses asked a similar kind of, kind of ridiculous question, if you think about it, right? He, he asked this, this similar kind of outlandish question of God in Numbers chapter 11, verse 13, when, when the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. Where am I to, give, to get meat for all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. This should be somebody's life verse, by the way. Give us meat. But Jesus is better than Moses. Moses didn't have a plan. But Jesus did. Again, that's verse 6. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And you can imagine Philip's Philip's body language as he he responds to this ridiculous question. Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even just a little. It's going to take 200 denarii is about a half a year's salary for an average worker. It's going to take a half a year's salary to feed all these people. Philip seems kind of resigned that this isn't happening. We don't have that kind of money, Lord. Even if there was some place around here to get that kind of food, we don't even have the money to do it. But what's Jesus really talking about? He's not really talking about bread, right? He will, I want you to be clear, he will literally feed them. But this is so much more than that because Jesus is the bread of life. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Look at verses 8 and 9 first. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Andrew steps in, overhears the conversation. He seems to be a little bit more optimistic, but, but not by much. Maybe, maybe he's just being nice to this little boy who offers to share his lunch. But he says, what are they for so many? And so in reality, both Philip and Andrew have come to the same solution for this problem. It is too hard, or, or, or even it's impossible. Feeding all these people is impossible. But they should have remembered. They should have remembered, for example, Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. When God said to Abraham, who was, after all, the father of their great nation, God said, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And, and the rest is history. It, actually, literally, it's their history. The people of Israel's history, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But no, their solution is, this is impossible. They should have remembered Jeremiah chapter 32, 
verse 27, where God again declared, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Remember Nathaniel's declaration in the first chapter? Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. See, man's solution here is pessimism. We don't have the money. We don't have the resources. We don't even really have the space. But Jesus knows what he's going to do. In fact, he, he will say later at a, at a different time, later in his ministry, in Luke chapter 18, verse 27, he, he will declare what is impossible with man is possible with God. And when he says that, what is impossible with man is possible with God. When he says that phrase, he's specifically talking about the salvation of souls. What is impossible with man is possible with God. So, so put all of this together. Jesus here, in this scene, he's not simply talking about, he's not talking about filet of fish sandwiches. He's not talking about a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. He's clearly talking about verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. He's sitting there, teaching them on the side of this mountain that he's going to meet their greatest need. But we think that this is too hard. Here we are, clear, clear out in the middle of nowhere, on the other side of Galilee, the middle of nowhere, Logansville. And we're hungry. And we're tired. And we're dirty. And look at all these people. This is impossible. This is too hard. We've got nothing for you. Go home. But then Jesus proceeds to do the impossible, which was his plan all along. And he actually makes it look easy. He makes it look easy. So this is Jesus' solution, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves uh, left by those who had eaten. Philip had said, There are far too many people. Andrew had said, We have far too little food. We have such few resources to spare. What are these for so many? But Jesus, in two of the most important words in the Bible. But Jesus, really without kind of showing concern for either of those problems, he instructs his disciples to have the people sit down. This is actually a gentle rebuke. He's being very gentle here. He could have himself told the people to sit down. They've followed him. They've been following him all around. They've been watching these signs. If he had said, hey, everybody have a seat, they would have listened to him. They followed him all the way out there. But he tells his disciples to do it because what he really means is set the table. That's what he's really telling his disciples. Have them sit down to eat. We have guests. We have 5,000 families to feed. Notice that it changes from the people to when it numbers them, uh, it's the men. So there's something like 5,000 families. And I just want to point out that when you have five loaves and two fish, 
If it's 5,000, 20,000, or somewhere in between, it's still impossible. Either way, this is a huge miracle. But there's something like 5,000 families there. So Philip and Andrew are right, it's impossible. Um, And that's the point, or at least it's getting at the point, because Jesus is the bread of life. So again, don't miss these details. John specifically points out, this is really fascinating to me. John specifically points out that there is much grass in the place. Do you think he's just trying to tell us that there was a comfortable place to sit? Maybe that's part of it. Jesus is not only the bread of life, however, he will say in John chapter 10 that he's also a good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Have the people sit down in these green pastures. Have the people sit down. There is much grass in this place. Jesus is the one who restores your soul, as Psalm 23 says. He's the bread of life. He's the good shepherd. And so here he is. Here he is caring for, loving, and feeding his flock. He's he's making them recline or or sit or, or lie down in green pastures where he will restore your soul and lead you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, for your good and his glory. Oh, taste and see, the Psalms say. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Once they're all seated, verse 11, the meal begins. and It's pretty straightforward, although it's clearly a miracle. Verse 11 again, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to them, to those who were seated, also the fish, as much as they wanted. He handed out the food after he prayed. It begins with a prayer of thankfulness, which is an important point here. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John's Gospel, he tells us that the traditional Jewish prayer went something like this, a prayer before a meal, went something like, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Think of that imagery as he prays, thanking God for the food that God has provided them, the bread. So after he prays, he says that he distributed the food, and the people ate and were satisfied. Again, this this miracle is a sign. This is a sign of who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it's also a sign of what Jesus does. This is a sign that Jesus is the bread of life. But this is also a sign of a meal to come. Listen to the prophecy in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter uh, 25, verses 6, 7, and 8, we read this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. This is a sign of that. It's a sign of what Jesus does. 
Again, Isaiah will say in Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 8, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, and on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Beloved, this this sign... This is a sign here that Jesus is the bread of life. And you know what? His baskets are overflowing. His baskets are overflowing. Do you know what that means? It means there's more than enough to go around. They ate and were full. It means that there's enough for you. There's enough for you to, to take and eat from the bread of life. It means that when you come and you sit under the Word of God, you can be satisfied with Jesus. A year from this sign, a year after this account, a year after John chapter 6 here, uh, in the upper room with just the 12, Luke tells us what happened at the next Passover. This is Jesus' second Passover when he's in ministry. At the third, he took bread, Luke tells us. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you is, uh, is the new covenant in my blood. Remember, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But then look at the response of the crowd. This is the final point here, the, the response of this crowd in verses 14 and 15. When the prophets saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet, or when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Thousands of people understood in some way that they had just witnessed a sign. They understood this somehow, in some way. Much like the the signs of the healings that they had been witnessing all along, the reasons that they were following him to begin with. In verse 14, it's actually the proper response. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. That's the right thing. Moses had had said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, he had told the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And Jesus is that prophet. But their next response was not correct. See, they should have worshipped him. They should have responded with, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. They should have said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But they didn't. Instead, they try and take him by force, or at least they were plotting to take him by force to make him into a 
a pathetic, small image of what a king they thought should look like. But Jesus cannot be constrained. Their view of kingship, of him being king in this sense, was completely inadequate. It was completely short-sighted. They were looking for someone to overthrow the Romans. Jesus is so much bigger than that. Because he knows the hearts of men, as we saw back in chapter 2, he withdrew from them. Because he knows what we need. And it is bread. He knows what we need. And it is a king, but it's so much bigger than it's so much bigger than a sandwich and a president. What we need is so much bigger than what the world has to offer. We need bread. And we need a king. We need a good shepherd. We need the bread of life. We need the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord Forever. Forever. Because Jesus is the bread of life. And whoever comes to him will never hunger. And whoever believes in him will never thirst. Pray with me. Father, remind us of this truth. This miracle was not about their momentary circumstances. It was not about one meal. It was about who Jesus is and what he really does. Feeding us. Quenching our thirst. Taking our sin. Removing our stain. Father, help us to have a bigger view of who Jesus is. That we may worship you. That we may sing praises to your name that we may tell others to come. To come to Him because His, his burden is light. His yoke is, yoke is light. His burden easy. That we may find rest. Help us to remember these things, to believe these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.